Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What's gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. Five years ago, I wrote my first global governance themed paper. It concerned the relationship between neoliberal trade regimes and the declining agrobiodiversity of crops. It was in writing this paper that I began to understand and become interested in the effects of 21st century globalized trade on our natural world and on local economies. This era of globalization has shifted our food systems immeasurably, bringing forth questions about just how much we are willing to alter nature for the benefit of a select few. Dr. Vandana Shiva, an ecological feminist and activist, has spent much of her career defending rights to food sovereignty and speaking truth to power to the governments and institutions that have allowed and encouraged this shift to occur. In this episode, we speak with Vandana about these issues and her esteemed career at large. Well, I think the two ways in which globalization hides what it's really about, which is about corporate rule and looking at it from my part of the world where we were colonized by an earlier globalization, it is really recolonization. Um, It hides firstly by creating a whole new vocabulary that doesn't belong to ordinary life. Therefore, it's not recognizable by ordinary people. Dr. Vandana Shiva is a world-renowned ecological feminist and activist who has campaigned against GMOs, intellectual property rights, and free trade. Her books, such as The Violence of Green Revolution and Monocultures of the Mind, have become basic challenges to the dominant paradigm of non-sustainable reductionist agricultural practices. Dr. Shiva is also a founding board member of many important organizations, such as the International Forum on Globalization and Diverse Women for Diversity. We had the pleasure of speaking with Vandana in January 2022. I literally just got back from, I was telling Sam, I've had, we've had three days of uh, a farmer's gathering for planning the next 10 years of work wow. from them, you know, and, and here are peasant women on the spot while they're with us, they're making poetry on farming. It's so inspiring, the talent and powers and potential ordinary people have. You know? mm. That's mm. what really keeps me going and keeps me hopeful because mm. I see it just coming out everywhere. Well, we wanted to, to start off uh, uh, the interview with a, with a hard hitter and um, a question about your career at large. Um, and you were just speaking about uh, uh, your meeting with, the, with, with farmers in your region and planning for the next 10 years. And it's very relevant to the question that I was going to ask, um, which is that throughout your career, you've spoken truth to power in so many contexts, including food sovereignty and, of course, enhancing the global eco-feminist movement. So um, could you please speak on how your career has developed from the beginning with this theme in mind and how you've maintained your commitment of speaking truth to power while navigating systems and institutions that were built to put white voices at the forefront. Well, you know, I started out life in physics and I chose physics both because I wanted to understand how nature works. That's been my my truth seeking all the time. Uh, But I also, you know, I 
I liked a quiet life. I said, I can solve equations with one pen and a piece of paper and I don't need anything else. And I was quiet and I hated to speak. I was made the school girl of my school and I had to run assembly. I said, I'll do everything else, but I will not speak. And, uh, you know, that was my principle of life. No writing, no speaking, getting the work done. And uh, the, the time that got me involved into activism and um, was a trip I was making to uh, the mountains to go uh, before going to Canada. And I'd grown up in the forests of the Himalayas. And, you know, I trekked these mountain forests and they were intact. And, and this particular patch had gone. And the stream that came from it was beautiful oak forest. And the stream was now a trickle because oak is where springs come from. And uh, that's the first time I realized that we are harming nature in a serious way. And uh, I started to make inquiries and I found out about this beautiful movement called Chipko. And what I would say is Chipko is the reason while I continued to do my PhD in the foundations of quantum theory, hidden variables and non-locality, I spent all vacations as a volunteer. And I think all good activism begins with volunteerism. Any activism that begins with a salary can be switched off as quickly as it can be switched on. It's volunteerism that lasts. And I remember during the trip back, there were these, you know, basically bonded labor who had escaped from a dam. And, and the goons had come after them to pick them up. And that's when I found my voice. Yeah. I said, well, for myself, I don't need a voice. Yeah, I can keep quiet, but for others, I need a voice. And so really speaking truth to power for me came from A, the fact that nature needs us to speak. She's speaking, she's screaming, she's shouting, and yet we're not listening. So then I said, no, I must speak. And then when I saw this exploitation and bonded labor, I said, I must speak on their behalf. I must defend them with my voice. And uh, it's really the awareness that one is part of a larger whole. You know, I could have spent a very beautiful life solving quantifications. I mean, if 100 years, the best minds could not solve the quantum proposal. I said, 100 years of my life, I can keep busy with this. Uh, but the destruction of nature and the exploitation of people is really what created the imperative and the obligation and the power. I just wanted to pick up on that aspect of activism and speaking truth to power. I feel most of our viewers and listeners will have felt struck by something, some injustice that they need to speak out about. And that might come from a position of a citizen of the world or a citizen of humanity. But then they might think that as a, as a father with a job or as a mother with a job and responsibilities, that they're afraid of speaking truth to power because of the repercussions at that level of their existence. Um, and I wondered if you could speak to that and overcoming some of those those hurdles there. Well, you know, responsibilities bring with them, of course, certain awareness of short time limits you need to put on certain kinds of action. But I think we must always see the system. And when the system is becoming fascist, system is becoming totalitarian, the system is becoming a silencing system, a censoring system, then I think it is really important to go back 
to the times of Nazi Germany. And I remember this beautiful poem by a Jesuit priest who says, they came for the unions and I wasn't a unionist, so I didn't speak. Then they came for the Jews and I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't speak. And then they came for so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And by the time they came for me, there was no one to speak for me. So anyone who, who sees deep injustice of a systemic kind and sees a pattern in it repeating all the time, um, putting fear in your life to accept that violence basically is an invitation to that violence on yourself because sooner or later it's going to hit you. Yeah, It might hit your neighbor today. It might hit the black person or the woman today. And therefore, in my worldview, violence is a totalitarian system. And at times it might look like it has certain targets, but violence is systemic. And in a similar way, nonviolence, which is called ahimsa, nonviolence, as a positive action, not the absence of violence, but the positiveness of nonviolence that comes from the recognition that we live in a living nature. We live with sentient beings. We live with others who also have rights. That imperative then creates the imperative to act. That uh, that understanding, Vandana, of of the sort of the, the system and these systemic drives and logics. I mean, you're famous for describing kind of corporate control, challenging corporate control, um, and and being and criticizing globalization. And I'm I'm curious to ask, you know, does globalization, in a in a sense, kind of hide its true political nature? I mean, how, how does how does globalization erase its systemic? actions, its systemic consequences. It's almost as if to exist, it, it must not exist. Yeah. Well, I think the two ways in which globalization hides what it's really about, which is about corporate rule, and looking at it from my part of the world where we were colonized by an earlier globalization, it is really recolonization. Um, it hides firstly by creating a whole new vocabulary that doesn't belong to ordinary life. Therefore, it's not recognizable by ordinary people. And to decode it, you have a second layer of hiding by talking in ways that people think, ah, oh, this could benefit me. I'll give you just two examples. So, you know, the first free trade treaty is not WTO. The first free trade agreement was the East India Company. Don't forget, it was the first corporation created that ruled the world. <clears throat> and, and that's what links, you know, my part of the world to your part of the world, <laughs> the East India Company and the British Empire. And the East India Company ruled us through a free trade agreement. And free trade is unfree trade. So it begins with double speak. Yeah. Unfree trade was the Indian traders will be taxed and the British trader was warned. It was a trading company. It wasn't a producing company. And it, through trade, it became a ruler. Uh, they could take military support. And the Indians couldn't defend themselves. They could start to become the rule writers, the property owners. You know, one, one pen stroke define all of this amazing continent, subcontinent of ours, the property of England. 
and therefore they could then collect rents. <laughs> and the rent collection is what led to $45 trillion of transfer in 200 years of British rule from India to England. And our people, the producers who gave that rent, because the rent was so high, it was 50% of the produce in cash. They were dying of starvation and famine, and 40 to 60 million. I mean, the Victorian famine story, there's so much written about it. And as Amartya Sen, who um, wrote a book on, on the famine, ha has shown clearly, it wasn't for lack of food, but it was lack of retaining your food because it was being extracted. So gl globalization has to be seen in the, in, as a in the colonial perspective, as an extractive system of rent collection. Um, how does globalization of today hide that? Then, now, you know, my, my life got shaped by the fact that uh, the corporations wanted to own the seed and do genetic engineering. To own the seed, people think genetic engineering came first. No, the idea of patenting seed came first and the tool was picked up from the public domain. You know, it was a public scientist of universities who had worked out recombinant DNA. And, and Asil Omar, in 72, they said, we don't know what this means. We know how to do it, but we don't know its implications. So we are putting a moratorium on our research. But once it was done, first the venture capital firms and then the poison cartel, as I call them, grabbed the technique, used it to try and own the scene. Why have I spent the last 37 years of my life resisting seed patterns? Because I see it as a new form of rent collection. And just as much as the British didn't really own the land of India, no one owned the land of India. You know, India land was the commons. We never had private property till the British created it. Our seed are commons. And intellectual property rights hides the enclosure of the biological and intellectual commons. Worse, because my government said, at the WTO, at GATT, you know, we are sorry, but intellectual property is a national subject. You can't drag it to the global domain. And the American uh, negotiators and lawyers just put TR before IP, trade-related intellectual property rights. Now it's trade-related by definition. And we're going to force you to patent seed and patent medicine and patent the essentials. So everything we see in the COVID debate, the patenting of vaccines, what they call vaccine apartheid, is exactly reflected in the same thing. But during that period, there were leaders, and I remember Clinton, and I remember Blair, I think, but they were all using this language. When the sea rises, all boats will rise. And through the rhetoric of leaders, the tsunami that was being created for local and national economies was hidden behind the rhetoric that all boats will rise. And, and books were written about first you have a village and then you have a nation and then you have the globe. No, we've always lived in international trade. People forget international trade is thousands of years old and India was the center of international trade. We were sending spices to the Greeks and the Romans and it's all there in historical records. And we are made to believe that, my gosh, it's only with WTO, or first with the British and then with WTO, we learned how to trade. We were so stupid. We didn't know how to move ships. We were the biggest shipbuilders of the world. We were building ships for the British Navy. And then it was banned. 
Vaccination for smallpox began in India, ancient times. Variolation. It's in the records of the India Office Library. Once it had been taken to England, banned here. So we have basically multiple ways in which the colonization of globalization, the violence of globalization is hidden. But for me, uh, and I think I should mention this. So, you know, we have defended food sovereignty because of those famines. We, that's why we created laws. The, the World Bank works very much in concert with the trade rules. And the bank said, oh, why are you saving crops? You know, if you harvest a crop, you have to save it for the whole year. You have to save it. They said, no, it's a waste of money. Export it. So it was exported at $60 a ton by Cargill. And of course, then there was scarcity and riots. And then it was re-imported at $120 a ton. I don't think the wheat ever moved. I think it just moved in Cargill's books. But Cargill made... Sitting with nothing, $60 a ton, it was 2 million tons trade. India lost the wheat we had grown, which we would be eating. For that, we were paying in foreign exchange. So this calculus of trade is another hiding veneer. It just doesn't let you. You know, and they said, oh, there'll be $2 billion of additional growth or something. But if you create it like this, a 60 billion export in 120, uh, $60 export, $120 import, you can cook up growth figures out of anything. And the concentration, that's the other issue. I have watched in these 30 years of globalization, trade landing in the hands of the Cargills and the Conagras, four, four merchants of grain. Food, seed, agriculture, landing in the hands of a poison cartel of four. Diversity of food cultures. Just look at the diversity we have. Four junk food makers, the Nestle's, the Pepsi's, the Cokes, and they write the sanitary and phytosanitary routes. And then you have more recent times of globalization. Uh, you know, you had the Walmarts, but now with the Amazons, etc., all of the digital platforms uh, of uh, appropriating a concentration of control on every sector, whether it's Airbnb or whatever you take. So globalization, in fact, is loaded, loaded, loaded with hiding. But the ultimate thing is crass, violent colonization of nature, of the planet, of local economies and national economies. And it is a hijack of democracy because it appropriates what should be getting decided democratically regionally and nationally, it ends up being rules written by the corporations. And, you know, because we were part of founding of a, a wonderful institution called the International Forum on Globalization, and we stopped WTO in Seattle because of that organization. I remember at one meeting, um, John Mohawk, uh, who, who was one of the members, not a founding board member, he said so beautifully, he said, you know what globalization is? The people who have the gold write the rules. Those who write the rules get the gold. Mm, yeah, thank you for that reflection, Bandana. I was just reading recently the Indian historian Utsa Patnaik uh, concluded that Britain extracted almost $45 trillion from India during the entirety of it, British yeah, colonial rule. It, absolutely. Her figures is what I was citing in the transfer of wealth. 
Mm-hmm. So I think another aspect which is deeper than globalization, you know, the, the edifice on which globalization rests and which imposes on cultures with other ways of organizing economies. Look at how England's, uh, uh, first look at how Europe's welfare system has been dismantled. And I personally believe Brexit, you know, because I've watched Brexit being created to dismantle the biosafety laws of Europe. I've watched those votings. And that's when England first said, we'll be separate. And then it became Brexit. And I think Brexit is the next step of hyper-globalization. It's going to be the launching pad to do everything that no democracy would ever accept. It's going to be the launching pad of all kinds of new partnerships between rascals. And, and it'll because of the absence of sovereign control and democratic control, it'll keep going through. And un, unless we, A, create massive movements like the Indian farmers did, they put a break on the, on the globalization and deregulation of markets. These rules were put in place by the World Bank in 91 during structural adjustment. But they tried and tried and tried, and you know, Parliament would throw this out. And it's only COVID. COVID has given so much shelter. That little, little, little virus has hidden such big crimes. It is quite amazing. Everything that was not doable without the virus has been done with the virus. And I think people should be looking around to see what are the freedoms we would never sacrifice if we were truly free. So uh, let's pick up that issue of hyper-globalization and perhaps patents in the most modern guise. I see there was a very interesting piece you wrote recently on the Navdanya website around patent 060606 submitted by Microsoft to the World Intellectual Property Organization, which in March 2020, cryptocurrency system using body activity data. And you've linked that to this idea of how data is the new oil and how this understanding is feeding new problems. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about on that theme in this context. Yeah. So, you know, this patent landed on my desk as so much in my life, so much has arrived on my desk, you know, like an invitation, do something about this, you know. When Monsanto, who people think of as the GMO and biotech giant, they wanted to privatize water. And they wanted, just like they've linked glyphosate and seed through the Roundup Ready GMO seeds, they were then thinking, okay, we'll now own water. And it's only when people buy our chemicals, which will be mixed in that water, that the terminator seed will become active again. Otherwise, it will be terminated. So they worked out a total control system. And this idea came from one of the shareholders, you know, the, the document on water privatization came from a shareholder of Monsanto. And I feel grateful that so many people have kept me informed about things that are so far away and I'd never be able to even, I wouldn't even be able to imagine that there's something like this happening. So this patent, as you mentioned, W02020060606, literally, you know, March is when COVID is hitting us. You know, I, I remember rushing back, you know, my last night out of the country was London. And uh, I had to rush back. But the last flight, my flight from Lufthansa was closed. My flight from other places were closed. The last flight that was available was via London. And I took that. And within no time, this is ready. And I know what it takes for a patent to work. So this was prepared long before. Now, 
what I am not interpreting anything about this. It is just in the text of the patent application. And I would ask, you can just go to the website of the world patent or WIPO, and you'll find this patent, read it. And it begins with two things that to me are very serious. It's about human body activity associated with the task provided a user may be used in a mining process of cryptocurrency system. Just analyze each word in that. Human beings, autonomous beings, are now users. The higher, you know, we are users, and the higher object is, is, is the machine and its algorithms, yeah? And we are given tasks. And our data is mined. They're using the word mining process. And then this data is mined, and we are judged on the basis of our activity, what our worth is, you know? In, uh, according to the UN um, Convention on Human Rights, we are all equal human beings. After Hitler's Germany, we said never again, never again will we legalize inequality in this brutal way. Here is a legalizing of inequality through a digital route. And, you know, if you happen to have heart problems, you've already lost value. If you happen to show a little bit of irritation with something being asked, You've lost a few more grounds. And then your valuation is done through an algorithm. And by now we have enough research in the world that shows that algorithms are written by human beings. And human beings usually of privilege. And privileged human beings are biases. They are, if they're usually male, white, rich, so they'll have white bias. And they will constantly write programs that will identify blacks in criminal activity, this facial recognition, this came through. Um, they'll have all kinds of women bias. And these biases of the algorithms will then shape our value as human beings. And the idea that we will be not just valued, but our right to live will come through this. If you're looking, you know, look at China and its credit system. There's certain things you can do and certain things you can't do. Certain places you can go to and certain places you can't go to. And I have watched the, you know, the disappearance of cash. Well, fortunately, I come from a country where, you know, we've had prosperous economies without cash. So for cash for me is not the beginning of economy. Economy is our relationships with nature, our relationships and community, amazing wealth co uh, creation systems. And I have lived in communities where with no cash, they have the most amazing houses, the most amazing clothing, the most amazing jewelry. Where did it all come from? And we should be asking that. But cash was the basic exchange system. And in India, 90% of the small work, tiny retail, the small vendor in front of your house selling vegetables, they all deal daily on cash. In 2016, a war was declared on cash. And it was called demonetization in India, but it was basically forcing digital currency. And if you notice how fast cryptocurrency is moving in the discussions at the highest level, including Davos, then it's not just that cash is being replaced by crypto. Humans are being replaced by algorithm evaluation of our worth. And that is, I, I 
believe that from the beginning of human evolution, you know, uh, uh, moving from apes to humans is a very tiny shift compared to this shift that is intended. And I think more people should be thinking about it and asking themselves, A, who gave them the power to decide what, who we are? Are we just users of the machines? What is our work? Are they going to decide it? The ones who've already pushed millions to hunger, millions to disease. And right now, while everyone was locked out and lost their work and livelihoods and lost their homes, the wealthy became twice as rich. It's just in this short two years of COVID. So it is a very foundational pattern, very foundational pattern about the future of our being, the future of being human, the future of being autonomous, the future of being worthy. That's tremendously interesting, Vandana. I was just going to ask if we could go back slightly and look at what you were talking about globalization and particularly food security and how that's related to um, ethno-nationalism and fascism. So how is it that globalization, hyper-globalization makes communities more divisive, makes them more scared? And, and what are the yeah. impacts of that politically? So, you know, what is globalization? But it is a rupturing through violence of the social economic fabric of societies. And and what it tears up under from under you is the very basis of your sustenance and your being. You know, you uh, you lose your livelihood. When you lose your livelihood, you're insecure. But while you are insecure, that same force of globalization is ready with a divide and rule policy. And, you know, the British tried it out and they manufactured the division. I have a little book that was written after 9-11. I think it's out of print and I've traced, you know, I was asked to do this. Noam Chomsky was asked to do what it means for America, what did 9-11 mean? So I went back to our partition and I've written about all of this. Um, I think at that time it was published by Seven Stories Press. Um, and what globalization does is not just create insecurity and insecurity is like desiccated straw. You know, ready to catch fire. It doesn't set the fire, but it's ready to catch the fire. Now, the very people who have created the globalization agenda know that if they don't divide and rule, people will organize to overcome their security. They'll organize for justice. They'll organize for democracy. Like people were organized for workers' rights. People organize, women organize for women's rights. All of those movements that we, you know, gave us things we take for granted, but they came out of struggle because people united. Without unity, you cannot fight for justice. So divide and rule is the way. And let me give you another historic background. So British in East India Company ruled us. And of course, they ruled us through extractivism. And in 1857, the peasants of India threw them out. They call it the Sepoy mutiny in British literature. But it was the Sepoys were peasant children. Yeah. But that was part of the mutiny. The rest of it was a, a bread mutiny because people would be hung on trees. And I've been to these villages where they would tell me this tree had 200 people hung. This tree had 500 people hung. People couldn't talk. 
about the revolution. So they used to pass a piece of bread. And if you accepted the bread, you were joining the revolution. 1857, the East India Company was thrown out of India. And that's the end of the East India Company. Then the British crown said, ah, oh, if they unite, we'll never have be able to rule them. So we have to divide and rule. And immediately then the division started. They manufactured a Islamic Muslim identity. They manufactured a Hindu identity and then polarized and polarized and polarized. Today's divide and rule, an example is the 2016 elections of the U.S. Outsourcing had left no jobs, especially in the Rust Belt, yeah? Factories closed, towns closed down, and then you have this election. And, um, and Facebook sold data to Cambridge Analytica. What was that data, yeah? that they used algorithms, you know, they used algorithms to define hate against women, blacks, Muslims, migrants. Those were the four hates on which algorithms were able to amplify the message. And then the electron machine worked to send these messages to every email, to every WhatsApp, to every phone. And that's the polarization that took place in the United States. That same polarization is happening in every society. I think the British election last time and the vote for Brexit came from the same fear. And economic fear and economic insecurity fueled then with the distraction of the enemy is your neighbor of maybe a different skin, maybe a different religion, maybe a different country of origin, but everyone else is your neighbor and they're at fault. Otherwise, you'd have your job. And before you know it, everyone is everyone's en enemies. And that's how societies get polarized. Would you be able to um, maybe expand on the, the current tensions between um, Muslims and Hindus in India at the moment, particularly with the rise of the Hindutva um, and as they relate to, to the BJP? Well, I don't think there are tensions between the people, you know. I'm surrounded by villages of all faiths and, and, uh, and people, there is no hate among people. It's a political agent. And it is meant for polarization. It is meant for polarization. But, you know, the way I look at it, and I, you know, I don't know how many of you have seen my book, Earth Democracy. I wrote it after Seattle because the media would say, oh, these anti-globalizers know what they are against. They don't know what they're for. I said, you don't realize that we are against patenting of our seeds against the destruction of our food sovereignty because we are for seed sovereignty. We are for food sovereignty. We are for a world where our world is not for sale. And so I wrote a democracy first as a little manifesto and then as this book. And I have a whole chapter here on, on the manufacture of hate, both as a, the insecurity as a consequence of globalization and these fake identities yeah, I say, if I'm a gardener, I'm a gardener. I know I'm a gardener. If I'm a teacher, I'm a teacher. I know I'm a teacher. That's my first identity. And when the British tried to make a census, people refused to put religion. They said, that's a private thing. No, you're none of your business. And more than that, till that time, the Hindus would go to mosques and the, and the Muslims would come to temple and, you know, amazingly pluralistic society. And then this freezing came, but an externally defined identity. And that's why for me, the idea of identity politics was very mistaken politics because you live identity. 
the minute it's an externally imposed identity, then it falls in exactly the way the, I remember Samuel Huntington, you remember the globalization, Iraq war, it was all part of one ugly piece. Huntington wrote his book, The Clash of Civilization. And he says, you cannot know who you are till you know who you hate. And that defining of identity through hate is what the politicization of identity is all about. Identities lived in place, in community, through the work you do. That is the positive identity. So our identity have been flipped, mutated into externally defined, fragmented, superficial identities. And those are being pitted against each other in a totally manufactured politics, a totally manufactured culture, because you know, culture is where the identity wars are taking place, the culture wars. And of course, in, in the real level, at, at the economic level. And all three are deeply connected. And that's why I talk about earth democracy as a democracy of a living economy, a true living democracy, not the democracy you put a vote that's decided by the money that can run that vote and the polarization that can finance it. And, uh, and living cultures, living cultures of being part of the earth. Our first identity is of the earth. We are earth beings. The minute we shift from that, we shift from our unity. I have worked with farmer, you know, side by side, Muslim, Hindu, wonderfully harmonious, celebrating each other's festival. The Hindus coming over to their neighbors for Eid, the, the Muslims going over for Diwali and the Shara. These are, these are brutal, uh, how would one call it? Um, you know, they're, they're a chopping up of society. They are a, um, a dissection of society to not let unity allow the power of people to shape economy and politics. Thank you so much for that. Um, I love what you were saying about us being of the earth and, and how these uh, forces and systems are trying to uh, polarize us and get us to forget that if we, if we ever knew it, I mean, some societies have never been built upon that idea and, and it has been to their detriment. And, um, I was wondering if you could speak on what you would like to see change. Well, there's many things, but uh, in the world system regarding the, the rights of, of the earth and, and how um, you see uh, the world order evolving from, I suppose, a, a rationalist perspective, which uh, we were just speaking before the, the, uh, the interview started on how I'm a recovering rationalist. <laughs> I used to um, prescribe to that. But uh, since then, due in part to the guests we've had on this, um, this podcast, and you're now included in, in that group, um, that's no longer uh, a view that I prescribe to. So I was hoping you could speak on, on that and yeah. what you hope to see yeah. in terms of Mother Earth being more of a guiding force in uh, international yeah. policy in the future. So all indigenous cultures have been centered on the earth and land, all across the world, across the world. And I, you know, I think there's a way in which Europe projects its present back into its past, which is a total mistake because the archeologists have shown it was a women-centered society, you know, it wasn't a militarized fighting society. And till the forced enclosures of the commons, it was a peasant economy in England. And, the three things that for me strike out very sharply 
is you have the witch hunts to make knowledge illegal, you know, knowledge of people, the knowledge of healing in the hands of women. Nine million people killed for knowing outside the establishment. Heretics and witches became one, you know. The second, enclosures of the commons. And third, of course, the colonization of our parts of the world, where in an interesting way, witch hunts happened against our indigenous knowledge, how hard the British tried to make Ayurveda illegal. And everywhere, it's totally popular. Yoga illegal, everyone's learning yoga, teaching yoga, practicing yoga. And the enclosures of what of the commons of England were the enclosures of our forests, enclosures of our land. Ours were called colonization, yours were called enclosures, but the process was exactly the same, exactly the same. So when you say about the rights of Mother Earth, we wouldn't use the term rights of Mother Earth, we would use the term laws of Mother Earth. And from that flow, certain obligations on our part and our obligation become her rights. In contemporary times, this really took shape after the collapse or the undermining of the Copenhagen summit on climate. Yeah. Most people think, oh, Trump pulled out of Paris. They, they don't even know that Mr. Uh, Obama flew into Copenhagen, pulled the five polluters to him, said, why are we obeying an international law of reducing emissions? Let's just get together and continue to pollute and just write, write voluntary agreements. And then he announced it in a press conference. And his press conference has boomed inside the negotiating hall where all the countries are sitting. And the president of Bolivia, Ima Morales, gets up and says, we were here to negotiate the rights of Mother Earth. How did those polluters negotiate their rights outside? This is illegal. Anyway, that was the end of the legally binding UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Mr. Obama killed the legally binding emissions and everyone's staring their eye out. Why aren't people pulling down emissions? Well, Mr. Obama made sure you don't have to do it. There's no legal obligation anymore. Morales said, I'm going to call people from around the world and write a declaration of the rights of Mother Earth and climate change. And that's what the Rights of Mother Earth Declaration is available on the Navania website. Hopefully, it will now be available again on the Bolivia website because they had a coup and it was removed. Um, I have a book called Origin, which is my work on biodiversity and patenting and all of this. But the last chapter is on the rights of Mother Earth. And this, I think, will have to be the future because either we will continue to have colonialism morphed into globalization, morphed into whatever you want to call it, um, the digital rule of today, the surveillance capitalists of today, and, uh, and extinguishing life in every way, both the life of imagined life. I mean, how can you even have something like meta? Yeah, Facebook becoming meta, to live in an unreal world. It's part of the cocaine of our times, yeah? And it's treated as probably at least the cocaine addict doesn't think, oh, he's getting becoming a more progressive human being. This is, you know, the way they've announced it. Now connection is evolving. This is the new level of connection. Disconnection is now being sold as connection. 
So all of this, all of this is about our separation. Whether it's separation from the earth, separation from each other, separate from separation from ourselves. Yeah, the three separations: the earth, society, and self. So, what does earth democracy and the rights of Mother Earth mean? A, we realize we are part of the earth. We are earth beings. That's our first identity. Second, all beings, all human beings are part of the earth. Therefore, all human beings, irrespective of their gender and their color and their belief and their religion, all of us are equal as human beings, as earth beings. The earth connects us in equality and humanity. And the third is when you know that, then your sense of who you are as a human being, your sense of self gets deeper and gets deeper. So in a way, the rights of Mother Earth is a reimagination of human rights. I've done a piece on Earth's rights and human rights, and it should be available as a little book I did uh, last, uh, last year, um, that you know, human rights flow from the Earth's rights. Because we wouldn't breathe without the earth, without the trees that give us oxygen. We wouldn't have food without the soil and the seed. We wouldn't have water to drink without our streams and our wells. So the earth gives us the material means of living, but the earth also gives us the cultural sense that we are one, humanity on one planet. Vanzana, just on that point, I think one of the interesting dialectics that I found is the call to help people based on a shared identity as being part of the world, but then also this more societal level of who am I to help as a, as a white male in, in, from the UK and the, the white savior complex. And the, you've talked extensively about the kind of the 1% and the, the reasons behind the, the saving missions. How do we resolve that dialectic of at once wanting to, help as a shared community, but then also understanding the, the subtleties and the nuances between just wading in and trying to help. Oh, I'm, I'm going over and helping with the, the farmer's revolt. I'm going to sort that one out because I think I know what to do. How do we understand which intentions are, yeah. are true and which ones are, are just a kind of egotistical? Yeah. So Sam, I would not equate the civilizing mission, which was a political mission, an imperialist mission, and in a hiding mission, just like there's a hiding of globalization. Colonization was hidden under the rhetoric of a civilization mission. Genocide was hidden under that, you know, and sadly the papal bull said, go exterminate them, but take their wealth. Um, the urge to help is basic to us. But to urge to help in, in an hierarchical way is where the problems come, you know, that I know better. And that's why, for me, it has always been compassion, not the urge to help, but the urge to feel as one. And when you have compassion, you take the guidance of what the person with whom or being with whom you have compassion is saying. And you take direction from there. Therefore, instead of helping from outside, helping from the top, you basically end up engaging in solidarity. Solidarity is the way we overcome the artificial hierarchies of colonialism, white superiority, patriarchal superiority, 
superiority of one religion over other religions. Those are all constructs and they're recent constructs. They can be shed. And I would say, you know, I've said this to friends in America. I said, stop carrying your white guilt. Just do something by listening to the people. If the Indian Native Americans called Indians because Columbus thought he had landed in India to colonize us, I mean, I always say Columbus's mistake united us in Indianhood. And I think that is something we should do, you know, unite in Indianhood to then say, how is it we can share this beautiful earth non-violently, equitably reclaim the commons. So I always tell my Americans, you know, they get up before my talk and, and then they say, I acknowledge that I'm on the land of so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. I said, can you stop saying it as a rhetoric? Just turn to that community and say, what would they do their land? Get the instruction from them because they get instruction from the land. And you follow that instruction. That is the true solidarity. Thank you for that beautiful reflection, Vandana. And we are rolling to a close. Um, I think to end, I'd love to invite you to perhaps offer a final reflection directed perhaps to some of our younger viewers, those who plan to see out much of the 21st uh, century. Uh, you said before that uh, we have to energize our democratic spirit much more deeply. And I'd be curious to ask, to what extent is the spiritual impulse part of the radicalization of that spirit which is required. And I'm thinking in particular of, of Gandhi's idea of satyagraha or truth force. And uh, I'd love to invite you to perhaps reflect on that theme yeah. to close out. You know, Gandhi gave it a name, but it is a force that has existed in every society. You know, when I read the records of the enclosures of the commons and the peasant resistance over 200 years, I believe the peasants of England were engaging in a satyagraha against the dispossession of their land. That was a Satyagraha. Satya truth, Agra the force. And it isn't only India. After all, when slavery was ruling America, they used to collect a poll tax. And, <coughs> um, and this amazing naturalist, uh, he refused to pay the poll tax. And he went to jail. And he wrote an essay called Civil Disobedience. So against slavery, the same thing was happening. This is what Martin Luther King practiced. This is what Mandela and uh, Desmond Tutu practiced. And interestingly, Gandhi actually was in South Africa as a practicing lawyer, and he woke up to racism. He studied England, England, never felt racism in England. But when they threw him out of a train in Peter Marisburg, he realized he was living in a racist world. And then they passed Indian laws to forbid Indians from practicing trade, from moving freely, and they required a registration certificate, very much like the kind of passports being required. And he said, we are equal citizens, we are equal human beings. We will not register. We refuse to register. And that was his first subject. He fought it from 1906 to 1911 when they had to withdraw it. And in that period, he wrote this beautiful little book on freedom. So for the young people, I think knowing your truth, knowing where you belong in the world and acting according to that truth to not cooperate and lend support to brutality, violence, injustice, polarization. 
That is today's Satyagraha. And because the assault now is on life, directly on life, our life as human beings, the life, you know, I'm just doing a brief. From England again came um, Das Gupta review. And they're redefining biodiversity, the diversity of life as an asset for the financial system. So we are being redefined as users of computers. Biodiversity and life in its diversity is being redefined as an asset for the Black Rocks and the vanguards and the money makers. Uh, this redefining of life is defining life away and is the larger extinction agenda. So those who are on the streets every day in England in Extinction Rebellion, take your concept and realize it is extinction when someone's thrown out of their home on the streets and becomes homeless because you are denying the right to live. It is extinction when you suddenly declare that migrants don't have citizenship, something that's happening right now, and people are dying in the channel, sinking. And that is inhuman. So your rights and the rights of the earth and the rights of others are the same rights. Transcending individualism that's also constructed, Margaret Thatcher says there's nothing like a society. We are only individuals. No, there's something like a society and there's something like the earth. And we are part of the earth and we are part of society. And that solidarity is what's inviting us for a satyagraha for life and freedom. That is what we need to do together from our diverse ways. Someone from education, someone from health, someone from agriculture, someone from farming, someone from women's rights, someone from children's rights. Our diversity is not a divisive force. Our diversity is our richness and our strength. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for taking the time, for sharing your wisdom and insights with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you and love to all of you. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you like this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. And if you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.